Hey there, and welcome back to the Forwardcast, the podcast designed to give former Jehovah's Witnesses and other members of high control groups the tools they need to rebuild their lives, rip out the bad mental programming and thought patterns that got shoved into their heads, take back control of their destiny, and become the people they were always supposed to be. So, joining me today on the Forwardcast is a friend of mine and colleague from JW Survey, Lloyd Evans. Just to give you a quick rundown on Lloyd, uh, Lloyd was formerly a member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, but upon leaving, he didn't simply leave and walk away. He decided that he needed to highlight some of the, the dangerous and toxic practices of the Jehovah's Witness religion, and also campaign to give other former Jehovah's Witnesses, and perhaps Jehovah's Witnesses still in the organization, the chance to analyze their own beliefs, come to a decision about whether or not they thought it was the true religion, and also to help support people once they'd left. Lloyd is the... Um, the creator of the JW Survey website, which regularly surveys um, former and current Jehovah's Witnesses as to their opinions on the organization. He runs a YouTube channel, the John Cedars YouTube channel, which regularly discusses uh, news items relating to Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Jehovah's Witness teachings and history. And he's the author of two books. The first is entitled The Reluctant Apostate, which is a mix of his own autobiography, chronicling, chronicling his uh, his life in the Jehovah's Witnesses and his journey out of the religion. And it's also a simultaneous analysis of the history of the religion. And he's also got a new book just out, which is entitled How to Escape from Jehovah's Witnesses, which is kind of a book that's custom designed to help people who've woken up in this religion and realized that it's not the true faith they thought it was. It's a book uh, designed to help them leave um, in in the best possible way. Um, so Lloyd Evans, thank you for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure and it's nice to be being uh, on, the, on the other end of the mic, so to speak. <laughs> We've turned the tables on you today. We have, yeah. <laughs> Are you going to introduce the news at any point? That's what I want to know. I'm thinking about it. I might, I might sort of segue some random news in here just so I can keep the theme going. Just so I can sure. keep the theme. <laughs> so what I was thinking is that if we could quickly start with a quick sort of five minute recap of your journey kind of out of the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you could quickly tell us very quickly about what your life was like in the Jehovah's Witnesses, how you woke up and what it was like to leave. Okay, so I guess the, the quick recap would be that I, I grew up a very much a devout believer. I uh, had a tragedy when I was 21 when I lost my mother um, to cancer. And when you lose someone as a Jehovah's Witness, the response is to draw closer to the organization. So that's exactly what I did. I went to a special school for Jehovah's Witness men. I graduated from that school. I later became an elder. And uh, yeah, I took everything very seriously. It was only when I moved to Croatia that I started within a few months to realize that I didn't believe. And that was purely because I was disconnected from the constant flow of uh, information, of indoctrination that you receive when you're a witness. When when everything's suddenly in a different language, (laughs) it can be uh, quite a wake up. Yeah, absolutely. And so you found yourself in that situation where you no longer believed the religion and and you took the decision. um, I believe you started JW Survey whilst you were still technically a member of the religion, um, but you were on your way out. 
Um, that journey out, you started to make it on your own, didn't you? Because at first your wife wasn't aware that you were, you were having these doubts and issues. Um, she, she, well, she, she knew I was having the doubts and issues, but obviously she was at a different place when that happened mm. because just because I was having doubts, obviously that didn't, that didn't mean that she was going to have doubts and it did cause quite a bit of stress in the relationship because I can always remember one of the things that she said, uh, not long after we were married is she said, the only, the only reason I could ever have to stop loving you would be if you stop being a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> um, and, you know, so knowing that when you do stop believing um, can be a very, very stressful thing. And you wonder whether in addition to going through, um, through leaving your religion, through walking away from your religion, you're also in effect walking away from your marriage. So all sorts of things start flying through your head but I, I tried to be as open as I could be about my doubts from a, from a quite an early stage and I did that actually through writing letters <laughs> because I was too terrified to kind of verbalize kind of in a face-to-face -face conversation what was going through my, through my mind because it was so traumatic for me to even talk about it that I found the solution was to just write. And and, and I think as it, it helped in a way to have it written down because then it showed that I was serious. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't trying to kind of con or anything. If I'd taken, if I was serious enough to put pen to paper, then, then I really did mean what I was saying. Yeah, and it's interesting because this situation you find yourself in, this is very common with people who are perhaps Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientologists or they're in a, a very fundamentalist, religion a fundamentalist form of islam perhaps who find that they're starting to realize that this religion isn't the religion i thought it was but they have a family who's also in this religion they have for example a wife or a husband and then they have this dilemma of i i want to leave this religion or i need to set myself outside of it because i can't follow this faith anymore but the potential cost of doing so um may like you say is this going to cost me my marriage is this going to cost me my family mm. um, so this is one of the reasons what we're doing on this podcast is asking people who've been through this situation for them, you know, what worked, what perhaps didn't work as well, what they do again, because you were able to help Deanna come to the realization that the Jehovah's Witnesses were not the true religion. Mm. So you, you, you were able to do that. What do you think was worked well for you? And what, what in hindsight wouldn't you do again? And what kind of advice would you give to someone who's in now in that situation you found yourself in? I think when it, when it comes to Diana, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I think without wanting to kind of brag too much, I pretty much did it perfectly. Um, <laughs> I, I did things slightly differently with my dad. Um, mm. But then I had, I kind of had different expectations for my dad because he was an elder or is an elder. Mm. And I, my logic was that if he's a congregation elder and he's therefore uh, a spiritual shepherd and someone who members of the congregation would approach with quite complicated uh, issues, including doubts and questions about their faith, why, can, why shouldn't he be able to handle a similar conversation with his son? Mm. And uh, when it very quickly became apparent that he couldn't handle that conversation, didn't want to have that conversation, in fact, would r bravely run away from such a conversation, 
Um, that kind of led to a great deal of frustration on my part. And I look back with regret that I allowed that frustration to manifest itself in the visceral way that I did. Um, I think I would have done that differently. But as far as my wife's concerned, I was just very... Um, well, first of all, I kind of resigned myself to the fact that it could potentially lead to the end to the end of of my marriage. So, I think that allowed me to kind of step back a little bit and, and try to be as pragmatic as possible. Hmm. Um, but I also just was very anxious not to uh, ambush her with um, information and and make her feel as though she was being manipulated in any way, shape, or form. So I didn't actually confront her with information. I would wait for her to come to me with questions. Um, the only exception being if I made a discovery such as the United Nations uh, NGO scandal when the Watchtower was a, a member of um, a non-governmental organization rather for the United Nations for nine years. Um, I went, you know, when you discover that, you can't help but mm. kind of have this share this revelation with with the with the person you care about um but that she could see in those instances that it wasn't a case of me trying to manipulate her it was literally a case of i've just discovered this and i need to share it with someone mm, mm. um a, apart from that i let her come to me with her questions and with with her doubts mm. and i think that approach uh reaped dividends so just kind of to summarize that it was um it was almost a question that you, you allowed her to be in control of the process. So yes. you kind of, you made it known that you were kind of available as a resource if she wanted to ask questions, but you weren't with the occasional exception of like, like you said, that almost Kaiser Soze moment of the UN, which is, which is completely understandable. You mm. kind of let her do it at her own pace, come to you, ask the question. So she, she was kind of in control of that process in a way. It was never a question of her having information forced on her. And then when you think about it, that's how it works when you do wake up from Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. You wake up because you're in control. If, yeah. if it felt as though someone else were in control or, or somewhat, someone else were making these decisions for you, then you would, you know, human nature would be to recoil and to mm. think, no, this is, I don't, I don't like this. Mm. So I, I pretty much kind of learned from my own feelings from waking up and how terrifying it was for me and tried to apply that as much as possible to, to Deanna. And I think that worked quite well. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing that's, that's probably worth pointing out is, as you said, you kind of, you've resigned to yourself to the fact that this, this might've been the end of the relationship, yeah. you know, thankfully it wasn't, but you kind of, I think it's important to kind of for people in this situation to understand that their spouse has choices too. And it may be that their spouse doesn't want to leave the religion there. Maybe their spouse won't wake up. So it's important to um, approach this hoping for the best, but being kind of understanding that the spouse has a choice as well. Mm. And you can't force anybody to wake up. Mm. Um, and it's it, it's that, that kind of thing that you're only responsible for your own decisions. You can't control the life of other people. Um, and as we've said, thankfully, in many cases, you know, spouses do wake up and people are able to leave with their family but obviously we know that's not always the case um, and there are there are witnesses who do you know suffer the breakup of a relationship which is which is very tragic but if, you, if you're in that situation it's important to remind yourself well you can't control the decision that the other person makes all you can do is be there for them 
offer them information if they want that information. Um, and then the rest of the choice is down to them. You can't beat yourself up too much over, over what they decide. Yeah. Um, but thankfully you were able to, um, to wake Diana up and you both left together. Obviously I know your father, as you say in your book, your father didn't leave. Um, and he's, so you aren't, you are one of the many Jehovah's ex Jehovah's witnesses who perhaps has contact with, you have some of your family in the, your wife and your, your little girl, but you don't have other members of your family. So you're in a very similar situation to many witnesses who leave without their friends or without large numbers of their family. Now, how did you manage to then rebuild that aspect of your life? So when you leave as a Jehovah's Witness, all of your friends go away. Mm. All of your contacts go away. How did you start rebuilding your social circle or reaching out for kind of new friends to, to talk to? Well, there's, there's kind of an irony there because I'm not really in a normal situation where I live because I'm in a country where I don't speak the language or at least I don't speak the language fluently um, so straight away it's difficult for me to kind of integrate with my sort of local community I do sort of integrate in that I occasionally play football with the local guys so to the extent possible I try to kind of be sociable with people in, in my community and I think if, if you were in a country where you did speak the local language, if you were a native, you know, for want of a better word, of that country, uh, one thing I recommend in my book is, well, you can go to kind of local um, community centres and join clubs and join a walking club and, and, and this kind of thing. That wasn't, that isn't really available to me. But what's strange is that by taking the position of becoming an outspoken activist against Jehovah's Witnesses, um, that led to me being shunned by family members, including my dad. But it also simultaneously led to the creation of a new community of, of friends because I, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to be completely honest, almost everyone who I am close to I am close to because of my activism. <laughs> so I know you because of my activism. I know, uh, you know, the rest of the, of the team at JW Survey. I know Javier, who I'm working on the, the, the documentary film with. All of these people I've met because they became aware of me because of my activism. So in a strange way, um, I, I, I've been with more friends now <laughs> through, through taking that step, but I don't expect that to be the experience of everyone because, of course, not everyone who leaves Jehovah's Witnesses is either inclined or in a position to become um, A, an activist, and B, an activist mm -hmm. who people know personally. Yeah. So I think the interesting thing there is that, I mean, as you said, it's all kind of everyone takes a different route, but the key is kind of getting involved in some activities. So yeah. for you, it was activism and also football. And, but I think that one of the things, if you're, if you're in that situation as a freshly left Jehovah's Witness and you think everyone's abandoned you, it can be tempting to turn inward and yeah. just kind of not, not get involved in things. But really the key to rebuilding your friendship, to rebuilding your life is, is taking that effort to go out and expand your interests and get um, involved in activities. And another thing that I, I think it's important is to, be, when it comes to non-Jehovah's Witnesses who you're trying to establish friendships with, is not to kind of expect them to A, be uh, sympathetic to your situation, mm -hmm. or B, be remotely interested in 
mm. in your background as a witness because it just doesn't come to to everyone to um to be that way inclined i mean religion is a massively taboo subject yeah uh, where some people I, I think it's especially true of the british culture <laughs> you have this kind yeah. of um oh i don't i don't really want to talk about that you know mm. um and and so i i don't hold it against people and that's one thing that you kind of encounter when you start talking to people as an ex-witness who mm. don't know anything about the religion you find yourself almost evangelizing a little bit about your yeah. experience and you're looking at the expression on the person's face and the, and their eyes just kind of glaze over <laughs> and you think oh crumbs they they are just not interested at all are they so but, but that's unfortunately uh, to be expected yeah and I've, I've had similar experiences where I've realized for me now, the key is if it comes up in conversation, I give a very brief answer. Um, sometimes the answer is, oh, I used to be religious or I was raised in a religious family, but I'm not anymore. And then you kind of like a similar thing. You just let someone ask questions and you'll find that usually once they've got enough information, they'll stop asking. Yeah. And, and sometimes I've met a few people who are fascinated and they keep me talking for hours because and other people they're, they're fine with a very quick, oh, okay, I used to, I used to be religious, but I'm not now. And then, because that's that's not because the friendship isn't based around that aspect of your personality. It's more based around who you are now, mm. and in many ways, that's actually quite refreshing. Especially as you as you spend more and more time away from the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you start to find people whose friendship with you is based upon you as a person and not some shared or past religious experience. It's actually quite liberating. And and just talking about religion doesn't do it justice, really, because mm. you know when most people think of religion, they think of going to church on a Sunday, don't they? But yeah. the, the whole issue with Jehovah's Witnesses is it's kind of like an alien world that we yeah. grew up in that, yeah. that bears no relation at all to reality. And I, I can't imagine, I mean, whenever you try and explain something un unlikely uh, or outrageous to someone, they always kind of in the back of their minds are thinking, he's making this up, you know? <laughs> and, and so that's another challenge that you have is, is that the experience that we had is so crazy. Mm. And, and the things that we were led to believe and do are so completely alien to what, what is normal that that's another uh, challenge that you, you do encounter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking on things that are that are crazy um, or you know harmful or not good. One of the things that is that Watchtower and obviously other high control groups such as Scientology or very fundamentalist strains of of Islam or Christianity um, kind of tend to impose on people is an ethical code which is flawed. Mm. Um, but if somebody's lived their entire life, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, we've spent possibly decades outsourcing our moral code. Mm. to somebody else's idea of morality and once we finally leave this this religion we're kind of standing there blinking in the sunlight thinking okay i don't believe the doctrines anymore um but i had this entire system of ethics which was placed on me now how do i go about you know where do i go from here do i jettison the whole thing do i pick and choose how do i go about reconstructing my idea of what's right and what's wrong and what's ethical um, how did you approach that challenge once you'd left the Jehovah's Witnesses? And would you say there are any major differences in your ethics as a Jehovah's Witness to your ethics after you've left? Well, I, I sincerely hope there are differences <laughs> because um, when I was a Jehovah's Witness, I thought it was ethical to break up families over differences of opinion. I thought it was ethical to persuade someone to die rather than accept a blood transfusion. 
if pushed, I would have said it was it would have been ethical under certain circumstances to cover up child abuse. And I also thought it was ethical that the seven billion people should die because they're not Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I no longer I find those those ideas completely grotesque now. So that's one of the great ironies is is that um, when you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're taught that apostates are these debauched, um, immoral people, and and you, actually when you become an apostate, in, in most cases, you your your morals become better tuned in a way. But um, in my own case, I mean, I when it came to belief and that kind of thing, I kind of. Uh, prevaricated a little bit as a Christian on waking up and the Christianity gave way to agnosticism and the agnosticism gave way to uh, atheist agnostic atheism but in, in terms of my ethics I call myself a humanist because I believe in critical thinking I believe in doing things that have the well the well-being of humans in mind to the extent possible and I find that that serves me very well as a moral compass. Yeah. And it's that it's it's interesting because that's the journey I think a lot of people will go on. And and obviously people will come to slightly. This is the thing. It, it's a mistake to expect everybody to leave a high yeah. control group and then for them to all adopt completely identical ethics. So you'll get a spectrum of people across various political or ideological or ethical concepts because everyone kind of finds their own path, which they think makes sense to them um i think the important thing i don't know if you agree with this is the important thing is not necessarily that the important thing is that you you find your own path through your own research and your own thought you mentioned critical thinking and i think that's the key is not because you spent so long as a jehovah's witness just accepted what's being accepted what's being given to you mm. but the important thing is when you are kind of realizing for yourself okay what do i think what do i believe ethically or ideologically or politically is to challenge every belief that comes in analyze it from both sides is you know what are the what are the pros what are the cons what, what's the best argument for this position okay mm. now what's the best argument against this position um and almost kind of have that continual open mind because the reality is that the jw ethical code is very black and white um and, and i've personally found and i don't know if you'd agree with this that the, the real world is actually sometimes there is black and white and sometimes there's gray mm. and sometimes there's you know what i actually see both sides of this and i kind of get why people disagree because i kind of agree 60 percent with you but 60 percent with the other guy and this is complex mm. um, do you think it's almost a question of like almost when you leave the jehovah's witnesses you're required to grow up in a way yeah. you're required to become mature when it comes to these decisions definitely because when you are a Jehovah's Witness, everything is black and white. A uh, classic example, which I'm constantly having to encounter when I do the JW Broadcasting rebuttals on my YouTube channel, is this false dichotomy of, well, if you are not a lover of Jehovah, in other words, if you're not a Jehovah's Witness, you're a lover of riches, you're, you're materialistic and wealthy. And, you know, that's quite clearly ludicrous but when you're a jehovah's witness you just you, you just think oh yeah well that makes sense um why, why wouldn't you be obsessed with money if you weren't serving jehovah um so everything in the jw world has is is black and white and but i agree that when you when you leave that behind you do kind of have to mature and think well not everything is black and white there are shades of gray 
and there are issues where there is no easy answer. And, and so it's worthwhile just taking some time to listen to both sides of the argument and, uh, and reach conclusions based on that. Yeah. It's kind of like to um, jump on a little bit onto another question about um, family situations, because I know um, you've got a little girl, Jessica. Yeah. Who, um, who I've met and is an incredibly cute little kid, by the way. So congratulations. She's got more of a mother than a father. That's <laughs> I, well, I didn't want to say anything. But... <laughs> <laughs> the interesting situation you're, you're probably going to be in moving forward into the future is obviously she's very young now, but as she gets older, she is going to start asking questions about obviously some of the, the family shunning that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and some other some other issues that are related to the fact that your family's left a high control group. Um, do you have any thoughts or advice as to how you're going to handle that situation and maybe advice you could give to other parents who are thinking, you know, how do I explain to my little boy or my little girl that maybe um, their their uncles or their aunties or their grandma won't talk to us? anymore? Yeah. Um yeah well at the moment jessica we've we've just celebrated her fourth birthday and well just celebrating birthdays alone is is a magical <laughs> thing when you're doing when you're doing it especially with your child i mean speaking for me personally i don't i can't get that excited about my own birthday but i do get excited about jessica's birthday but i was really proud in a way that we've made it to her fourth birthday without her knowing anything at all about religion she just if I was to say Jesus to her or God to her, there would just be this blank expression on her face. She wouldn't know what, what I was talking about. I'm, I'm not expecting it to be the case that we get to her fifth birthday and she's still quite that um, naive. But I, I'm glad we've at least got her through the first four years. Um, I guess when, this, when the conversation comes up, there are kind of ways that you can explain things to a child where they will understand it. And one brilliant word that I I like that children immediately understand because they have such a brilliant imagination is pretend. And so, for example, uh, Jessica's parent, uh, sorry, Jessica's uh, grandparents on Diana's side, she sees them quite regularly. And uh, even though they're Jehovah's Witnesses and it's quite complicated as to why they are in my life and my wife's life, but, um, but my dad isn't. But nevertheless, it still has an impact on Diana's parents and that will become increasingly noticeable to Jessica as she gets older so I think it will just be a case of saying well uh, grandma has a pretend friend called Jehovah and and grandma thinks that Jehovah wants her to do this but really Jehovah isn't real but don't say that to grandma because it will upset her (laughs) so I think that there are kind of ways of of approaching it in a way that a child would understand. Mm. Um, when it comes to my dad, um, I'd probably approach things in a similar way. But the thing is, he is because he's not met because he's shunning the family. He hasn't met Jessica yet, so she mm. literally has no idea who he is. And even though we've we've periodically kind of shown him her picture and said, "This is Lloyd's daddy." Um, if I show her a picture of, of my dad, as I did a couple of weeks back and say, who's this? Um, Jessica will say, I don't know. Um, Mm. or there'll be this blank expression on her face and she'll wonder what I'm doing. Um, so I, am not expecting too many questions too soon. I, Mm. I suspect by the time she's old enough to start asking questions about him, 
she will also be old enough to understand things at a slightly more yeah. complicated level. Yeah. So it's that kind of really tailoring the explanations to the, the level of age that she's exactly. at. Is, exactly. Yeah. 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 Not, and I like that idea of where, especially when you said, um, you know, you sort of explain that grandma has a, uh, a pretend friend who wants her to do this but don't don't say this to grandma because she'll be upset that's actually quite nice because exactly. it lets jessica understand yeah. what's going on but also let's just go understand oh i don't want to upset grandma and it, it it kind of it's a nice way of just handling the situation for now yeah yeah that's nice so one thing i wanted to come on to because obviously you've been um very successful in your activism you've reached a huge number of people um you've got a youtube channel i think is it twenty five thousand subscribers it's now 26 26 okay we've gone up an extra thousand yeah um you've got the jw survey website um you've had numerous uh, media appearances um where you've been uh, interviewed on the bbc amongst other places about issues pertaining to the jehovah's witness religion so if somebody is because obviously the first thing is some some people leave the jehovah's witnesses have no interest in being an activist and that's absolutely fine because the main thing about leaving the religion is you, you would now want to start living your life the way you want to do it. And if you're not interested in activism, then you shouldn't feel that you, you, you know, you're obligated to do it. The, the point is you now have to go live the life you want. But some people do leave and they think, I actually want to do something about this. I can see the, the problems and me, my personal journey, I think, is going to take me towards in some way trying to, to address these issues. So what advice would you have for somebody who's wants to get involved in activism, maybe is just getting started, what kind of general guidelines as a kind of a do's and don'ts would you recommend to somebody based on your experience of, of uh, activism? I think, I think, first of all, you need to want to do it for the right reasons. If it's just about getting subscribers and just about getting views, that will very soon show in the content. Um, another piece of advice that I have is to um, try, I, I try as much as possible not to be too self-indulgent when I'm on the camera. And you do, you do occasionally see YouTubers who um, don't bother editing their videos and leave in a whole load of stuff that's really not necessary or just them goofing around. And I try to put myself in the shoes of the person watching and mm. think if, if I was watching this video, what would I want? How quickly would I want the information and, and what would be the best way of getting this mm. information across? So those are the two main things really is having the right reasons to do it and mm. also not taking anything, anything for granted and don't being, don't be boring and don't be self-indulgent. <laughs> um, but I, I think with my own channel, I was thinking about this uh, not so long ago, and it's really been a very, very long journey. Um, I can imagine if someone's only just recently started watching the videos, they they kind of imagine this kind of um, you know rocket ride, skyrocketing figures, and it's just grown overnight. It really hasn't. Um, I set the channel up back in 2012, and back then I was still. Um, undercover so I couldn't show my face on camera and I kind of really set the channel up more so that I could um, play recordings of governing body members speaking like Tony Morris for example because this was before JW Broadcasting and no one really knew who the governing body members were. Uh, they were they were out of sight out of mind which I think made them more credible um, and I wanted to change that I wanted to show people what who the governing body members were so i would 
I would I created a series called Getting to Know, and then I would have the governing body member's name, and I would show clips of the talks, and um, and then I can remember one day. This was actually still in 2012. It was after the Candace Conti victory. Um, this was a massive story where there'd been you know, Watchtower had been defeated in a court of law on the mishandling of child abuse. And I can remember my good friend and mentor, John Hoyle, saying to me, um, you know what, Lloyd, um, there's no, there aren't really any videos on YouTube about the Candace Conti lawsuit. Why don't you make one? So I thought, oh, I kind of treated that like a challenge, you know? So I went away and I wrote a script and the script ended up being for a video called The Candace Conti Verdict Explained, Why the Watchtower Has Been Punished Over Child Abuse. And it was only, it wasn't a very long video and I had a friend narrate it for me because it couldn't be my voice otherwise it would be recognised and I just put some imagery to it and that kind of thing. And, uh, and that was kind of the first of the videos that were, were more than just me playing you know, clips of governing body members, it was me giving my opinion. <laughs> and, and it wasn't until sort of November of 2013, by which point I decided that I was going to get, I was going to leave the organization as I started putting my face on camera because I was mm. like, to hell with it, I don't care. Yeah. Um, but it, it really then, even then, it was a very gradual rise. So 2013 was when I started vlogging. It wasn't until mid 2015 that I got past 5,000 subscribers. Um, it was mid 2016 when I got past 10,000 subscribers and it was early this year that I got past 20,000 subscribers. So it, it, it's been a very gradual thing and, and, I, and there's been a lot of work and time and emotion and you know and late nights that have gone into it it really isn't just a case of oh i think i'll make a video and oh this channel's just exploded it really hasn't happened that way yeah so that's so the, the key takeaways from that really are probably if you're an activist make sure you're doing it for the right reasons think about your audience i mean what what would you how would you like to have this this present presented and what kind of perhaps would you say if you if the activists watch the videos they enjoy and try and work out okay mm -hmm. why do i enjoy this what appeals to me about this yeah um, and then kind of have it in mind that it's a long haul it's 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 going to be it's going to be the kind of thing you don't want to burn out on because i know when i first started activism i was like oh i'm going to write all these articles and do all this stuff and i'm going to do all this stuff every week and i suddenly after a little while i was like i have to slow down a little bit or i'm going to burn out um and so I think that's that would be one thing I'd say to anyone who's considering it is if you're gonna if you're gonna start that's fantastic but try and pace yourself a little bit because you'll have all this enthusiasm at the beginning yeah. and you need to make sure you don't run out of energy too soon. I I have this theory that activism has like a two year burn on it, mm. um, and and that's just from my experience because I've been doing this now for what um, six or seven years now and mm. it just strikes me that people people kind of burst onto the scene and and they they make loads of videos or they write they write loads of blog articles usually over like a one or two year period and then they completely vanish um and and some some kind of like yourself stay the course but it, it's to do to stay the course you need a number of factors to come together you, you need to really have the fire in your belly you need to have um 
things going well for you behind the scenes. So you need to have your friends around you, you need to have your family around you supporting what you're doing. And it's just that all of those stars aren't going to align for every single one. Mm. And I think also for some people, it's for some people, activism is like a long term goal. And I think for others, it fulfills a very it's a very useful short term thing that allows them to process what's happened to themselves. And it allows exactly. them to also give something back for the, for the next kind of the next generation who are leaving. And then they kind of feel like, you know, it's time for me to try other things in life, yeah. which is also equally valid. But as you say, there's that there seems to be that that kind of churn of people who arrive and people who leave. And, and that's all fine. But if you're going to make it like a long-term goal, as you say, you need to have those factors in place behind the scenes. You need support behind the scenes. Uh, you need pacing. Um, and you need to really have that desire for you to want to spend that amount of time focused on this. Yeah. So coming toward the end of the podcast, I've just got a couple of other questions I'd like to ask, which we tend to ask all the guests. Um, so what aspect of your former group in this case jehovah's witnesses actually proved useful once you'd left so was there any training or mindsets or attitudes which the witnesses kind of gave you which once you left you thought well actually i'm going to get rid of 99 percent of this stuff but this one thing hey watchtower thanks very much i'll, I'll take that that's rather yeah. useful i i can think of three things okay. um first of all public speaking and again this is one of the the great ironies about Jehovah's mm. Witnesses is is that the the thing that taught us or taught me to be a uh, a reasonable public speaker or or, gave, or at least gave me that training no longer mm. exists, which is the theocratic <laughs> ministry school. So, you know, I couldn't have that back if I wanted it, you know, because yeah. it's no longer there. But I'm grateful for the fact that I got that training in. It, it was probably the only transferable skill <laughs> I, I received as a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'm grateful for uh, is just learning about Jehovah's Witnesses because for most people, for, or for the vast majority of people, learning about the ins and outs of Jehovah's Witness doctrine in, in all of its kind of tedious monotony is gonna be deeply, deeply, deeply meaningless. Mm. Uh, there's no actual use for it um mm. but i've got as you know a, m a massive collection of watchtower books and i i think of it as something that that's nicer to look at than than it is valuable it, it it's essentially just a, a wall of nonsense but i'm i'm glad that for me personally that i learned it all and mm. i'm i'm particularly glad that i was able to go through ministerial training school because it just so happened in my particular case that I was then able to then turn around and use all of that information against Watchtower because I knew it. Yeah. So in my own case, it's worked out well that I, I learned a lot about the religion. And the third thing related to my MTS is uh, speed reading. <laughs> because yeah, okay. when, I, when I went to MTS, they were saying, oh, you need to learn how to speed read. And I was like, what on earth do you mean speed reading? There's only one speed I know of when I'm reading, and that's just reading. Yeah. And they said, no, no, it's, it's when you can kind of scan through a page and get the gist of what it's talking about. And I didn't believe that you could do it, but I've actually learned how to do it. And that's coming useful, for example, when we've had court documents that I've needed to kind of read and uh, transcripts and what have you. And I wouldn't even call it reading. It's just being able to kind of scan the page looking for certain words so mm. that I know roughly what paragraphs talking about what. And that's something I picked up at MTS. So. 
Cool. Because that's something we always kind of on the podcast, we encourage people to do is that the first instinct when you leave this this group is to say, oh, what do I do now? They've, they've taken all this stuff from me and they probably have. But have a look at what you may have gained from them, because now you can use those skills for yourself. You can use those mm. skills to build your own career up, to start building your own life. And that's that's the key of kind of so rather than focus on what they've taken, although that might be painful, try and focus on what you've been able to glean and build up and how you can start using those skills for your own purposes now and then to build up your own life. So related to that, what was one of the hardest cult habits to overcome? So of all the things that Jehovah's Witnesses taught you that was harmful or toxic, what's the, the hardest to overcome and how did you, how did you overcome it? Uh, the, I think the hardest part, which any apostate goes through, is, is the stigma of reading apostate information. It, it was... For reasons that we all know, it's it's like climbing a mountain. It, it's a really difficult barrier to push through because you have your whole life been taught that um, apostates get their information from Satan and it's all lies and it's very, very cleverly designed to mislead you and manipulate you. And just pushing through that barrier, I, I think, out of everything, was, was the most difficult. Mm. Um, and also just being able to laugh at the leaders, I think. <laughs> because I can, I can remember when I first started making my YouTube videos, I've mentioned the, the getting to know you um, videos. Mm. I was basically mocking the governing body members and because Diana was slightly behind me and waking up, I can remember her saying, oh, Lloyd, you have to do that. They're the governing body. You can't make jokes about them, you know. And, and that is how you, how you feel as a Jehovah's Witness, that these are sacred men. Mm. And whatever you do, you can't laugh at them. Mm. Um, but just learning to, because if there's one thing cults just cannot handle, it's being laughed at. Yeah. And uh, I think that just learning to do that and, and giving yourself permission to do that takes away a lot of power from the cult. Okay. So if, lastly enough, if you had one piece of advice you could give to those who've just left, so not necessarily just Jehovah's Witnesses, but anyone who's left a high control group or a cult, or as sometimes when we discuss in this, someone who's left like a really toxic controlling relationship, and they're finding themselves now in the sunlight. They're free of this control. They're free to be the person they want to be. And they're thinking, okay, what do I do now? What would be one piece of advice you think would be useful for them to have in mind? It's difficult to boil it down to one piece mm. of advice. But if I absolutely had to choose one and only one, it would be to do research. Because I think that too many uh, people leave groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and they just shrug it off and say, well, I just know it's not true. I just mm. know it's a cult and I don't need to uh, invest many hours of studying to know that that's the case. But then what, you, what, you're, what you're left with are all these kind of inner conflicts because even though your conscious mind knows that it's not true, your unconscious mind, and I'm no expert on psychology, but I know that these hang-ups stay with you if they are not successfully purged. Mm. And, and the way to purge them is through um, briefing yourself on exactly how you were lied to so that when the hang-ups and the doubts and the insecurities and the flashbacks come calling, you've got like a, a, a repository of factual information that you can counter it with. Cool. Thank you. So 
The last thing we always do on these podcasts is uh, ask our guest if they have one awesome thing they would like to recommend to our listeners who are perhaps stepping out of a high control group and into a world where they're free to think and explore and do and experience. So is there one thing you think people should really check out that you found useful or entertaining or just plain fun? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, we, you, uh, I guess, I guess travel. Just see as much of the planet as you possibly can because it's a big old planet, and our time on it is is limited. We're never gonna. We're just. It's just impossible to see all of it. But at least uh, during our moments in the sun, if if we can see as much of it as possible, and I know they they have the cliche that travel expands your mind, but I, I really do believe that. I think that you need to kind of understand that there are different places from where you grew up and there are different ways of thinking and different cultures and that kind of thing. It really does alter your perception and make you more open-minded and tolerant and, and kind, I think. So lots of travel. Cool. Thank you. So the thing I'm, I think I'm going to recommend is a podcast I've been listening to called History on Fire. And it's by a historian and lecturer called Daniele Bolelli. Um, and you can find that podcast on iTunes, but it's this really interesting series because he's this Italian guy. He's got this fantastic <laughs> Italian accent, but he's a, he's a history lecturer. And he has this ability to take you through all the podcasts about different periods in history. So I've just been listening to one, which is all about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And he takes you through the events and the culture that led up to um, that battle, you know, and the famous Custer's Last Stand and, and the aftermath and the impact it had on the Lakota people. And it's absolutely fascinating because he takes these kind of these instances in human history and really takes you inside the experience of what people were feeling at the time, why people were feeling the way they did. He helps you realize what it was like to be one of the Lakota Indians who was literally facing the end of their way of life and the gradual shrinking of their territory. And then takes you into like what it was like to be one of Custer's men on the little bighorn as you slowly start to realize that you're being surrounded, you're being overwhelmed, that everybody is going to die. Mm. And it's this really interesting step way of it's kind of related to what you were saying about travel of sort of stepping into other human experiences mm. and expanding your mind. And it's, I, I think that's an excellent podcast. If people are looking for a, a gripping history podcast, I'd really recommend History on Fire, which is available on iTunes. There, there are a few simple pleasures in life that beat learning something that's interesting for the first time. Mm. Um, I was watching a documentary on Nikola Tesla recently and um, it was it just had a nice way of explaining how an AC motor works because that was sort of his thing, the mm. thing he invented at a time when direct current was the only form of electricity. The big challenge was, well, how do you make a motor run on alternating current? And it just explained it in a way that I could personally understand for the first time. And just those moments where you're like, oh, I've actually learned something there. Um, a really enriching experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, Lloyd, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you online, and what what pro what projects are you are you working on? Um, I'm embarrassingly difficult to avoid online, so <laughs> uh, you can you can find me on Twitter, I guess. Cedars JW Survey. You can find me on YouTube in on the John Cedars channel. I occasionally pop up on JWSurvey.org. 
and on Amazon, my book is The Reluctance of Prostate, and the other one, the more recent one, How to Escape from Jehovah's Witnesses. Cool. Lloyd Evans, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, as always, thank you for listening to The Forwardcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, there are many ways you can support it. You can subscribe on iTunes to get access to new podcasts as soon as they go up and to easily access our back catalogue. You can share this podcast with your friends and family on social media, and you can follow me on Twitter at Covert Fade. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Patreon slash Covert Fade. And thanks so much to everyone who's already donated. Your generous support continues to make this podcast possible and to help us to meet the expenses involved in creating it. Remember, you just get one life. So work out the kind of life you want to live, make a plan, put that plan into action, and start living it now.